Hello, I'm Hiron Zani and welcome to Brandenburg One. You're listening to Barack Now, and for each episode of this podcast, you'll be joining me in conversation with the fabulous musicians and artists who bring Baroque music to life with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. In this episode, I'm joined by Anthea Cotti, whose solo performance you may have seen in the Bach series. She played the Allemande from Jay Sparks, Suite No. 1 in G Major for solo cello. And today we're talking about that piece, Anthea's instruments, Baroque affections and manuscripts. Anthea Cotti, it is a privilege and a pleasure having you here today. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Welcome to Baroque Now, and today you're going to be the one in the hot seat. I'd love to hear, first of all, all about your instruments. You have quite a collection, don't you? I do have quite a collection. So I have my Baroque cello, which is a, a beautiful instrument by Peter Wormsley. So it was made in 1735 in London. Um, it's got a very dark colour, both in its kind of tone and also in how it looks on stage and had quite a hasn't had an easy life I think by judging by the kind of evidence of damage that I can see along the top but yes you've shown me and and I've seen it up close it's quite astounding that it's still together and I know (laughs) when I bought it in London I did worry that it you know how it would respond to the climactic challenges that we have in Australia humidity and heat and all these kind of things but it seems to have held up pretty well um, which is which is a relief for me and for the repair bills, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's you know it's definitely had a history and you know the classic thing if only it could talk and um, I'm sure it would have many many stories to tell. And so the baroque cello is not the only instrument that you've played with the orchestra, is it? No, so I've also played the viola da gamba, which is um, something I took up a little bit more recently. It's a seven-stringed instrument, or six or seven, mine is seven, um, that has frets and it's sort of tuned more in the way that a guitar is in fourths and third rather than the fifths of the cello. So it's, you know, quite a challenge in its own way and a beautiful, beautiful sound. It has a higher, both higher and lower range than the cello. Um, so, but I was always very attracted to it as an instrument. I used to be a viola player. Um, before I played the cello and, you know, it has that beautiful tenor kind of range in it as well. Mm. Um, I got to work with some viola da gamba players at the Royal College of Music and it was a bit of an odd uh, idea because they were throwing contemporary music and and these budding young composers like myself at these uh, viola da gamba players who hadn't necessarily, whilst they were very capable of reading some notation that I simply can't make head or tail of, um, they hadn't really ever been exposed to the sorts of graphic notation or things that were quite popular in um, at, at the time I was at the, the college anyway. We, there were some things that worked and some things that didn't mm. work so well, but it's such a beautiful instrument uh, mm. on, on so many levels. Yeah, it's actually really extraordinary. And some of the, actually some of the um, most... Uh, memorable kind of experiences I've had of playing that instrument have been with contemporary music. So the first piece I played publicly actually on the viola da gamba was a um, concerto for two gambas by uh, René de Chiffre, um, which is, he's a, a current gamba player, but he wrote very much in different styles. You know, one movement is quite reminiscent of Bach, another another movement is quite reminiscent of Vivaldi, 
and um, also a tango, which is obviously not at all Baroque, but um, quite stunning in its in its use of the instruments and things as well. So, why don't we have a listen to the start of that tempo di tango from the fourth movement of Renato Antonio Duchif's Concerto for Two Viola da Gambas in D minor. was Renato Antonio Duchif's Tempo di Tango from his Concerto for Two Viola da Gambas in D minor, performed live at the City Recital Hall by the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra featuring Lixania Fernandez and Anthea Cotti on the Viola da Gamba. Now, obviously, with your varying instruments come uh, a whole host of complexities. Uh, how do you have to work with your different instruments to produce the best sound? Do you play the viola de gamba in a very different way to the way that you have to approach the baroque cello? Uh, how, how much crossover is there between playing as an instrumentalist, playing those two instruments? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so the bowing, for instance, is very different. So cello, we hold the bow over the top. Our hand is sort of sitting on top of the wood and um, you, you don't really touch the hair. There's sort of... Sort of um, you're able to kind of use the weight of your arm to to 
um, pressure, I suppose, or kind of rest the bow into the string. Whereas with gamba, um, we pull the hair from underneath and you change the tension on the hair with your fingers as you're going. And effectively, the strong bow, which is an important idea in Baroque music, that you have a strong and weak notes, a sort of variation in the sound that's, that's not even. The strong bow is the opposite way around. So um, quite different in that way, in the kind of um, physical kind of aspect of in the bowing especially. So, mm. um, and obviously there's, there's things about, you know, using frets and, um, and having different, you know, amounts of strings and all those things that are, that are quite different. And I think that's one of the things that I find really interesting about playing different instruments because I also play modern cello um, quite a bit and the tension on that's really different. The tension in the strings is much stronger um, and I play basta violon which is like a tone lower than the cello and the strings are quite a lot thicker. That can be either overhanded bow or underhanded bow and mm. um, there's a sense for me that I have to be, uh, you know, really put myself into a space where I am um, consciously with that instrument that I'm with at the time so that it's not kind of I play each of them you know enough that that none of them kind of feels necessarily like home I suppose but they all d- sort of do feel like home as well mm. so I have to really kind of which instrument am I with right now and how am I making that sound and how really the contact between the string and the bow and the different tension that each of them has is something that you have to be very present with. And on many occasions I've spoken with uh, Tommy Anderson about things like touch and and the way that he has to approach his various lutes and theorbos, and and he said exactly the same thing. In, in With his uh, individual instruments, he needs time each time for each different instrument to accommodate his strings, get used to the touch, and so that he can feel confident with giving obviously that instrument what it deserves in terms of the way that he's going to be performing on it and the sound he's going to produce with it. Mm. And there's just a slight difference between sometimes the spacing between strings, the thickness of the strings, all of that is Absolutely. invisible to us in the in the lovely warm concert hall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it does. It's interesting in this, you know, in this period of time where we've had, you know, obviously not many concerts to prepare for and it's been up to us really what we choose to practice and how we choose to practice and what we choose to do that actually going back to playing the gamba is one of the things that I've been doing perhaps more than the cello and it's kind of it's interesting for me that this is kind of it seems to I guess occupy my mental space more fully in a way mm. it sort of keeps me more distracted and more um fully engaged in a non-verbal kind of space, which yeah. is just about, you know, how you're using the body, how you're using the bow, what the strings feel like, you know, being able to sort of, um, you know, find your way geographically around the strings and the notes and that kind of experience is um, is actually a really beautiful place to kind of sink into. Now, uh, let's go back to your Baroque cello. And the sound that you were talking about, that beautiful, mellow sound, deep, rich sound that it has, does that sound, does the sound of your individual cello, when you're playing with the other members of the cello section of the Australian Brennerberg Orchestra, does that instrument blend with the other instruments? Or is it something that you sort of have to work towards as the player? Mm. 
that's a good question. I think actually um, English instruments are quite known for their blending. So in the sense that, and I guess that sort of um, perhaps that darker, mellower kind of tone is does incline itself to blend um, perhaps more easily than instruments that are probably higher in those higher overtones or kind of more strident in sound. So, and I think that's really, it's a really great question in terms of, you know, one plays quite differently in a section and trying to produce a unified sound in the same way that voices in a choir might might do that as well. That you mm. don't necessarily want to hear individual voices that you're trying to um, really have a blended um, but nuanced and interesting kind of presentation of the bass line. Mm, and indeed, as a, a member of the bass section of the Brandenburg Choir, mm. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, it, there's nothing worse than one bass going out on his own. It's it's yes. not how we do things in the bass section. <laughs> Absolutely. It's not how we do things in the bass section. But the bass section it, for the orchestra, the basso continuous section, changes all the time. I've seen various permutations mm. of that section. Maybe you could uh, just talk to us a little bit about the basso continuous section and how you your role in in that section sort of plays oh that's this is really i think why i play baroque music so i love playing continuo lines and the the harmonic interest and the kind of drive around this and the also the tremendous variations of color so probably a lot of your audience might know this or or if they don't the that paul and the cellos and the bass and the bassoon and Tommy on Theobo, we all have the same part. So um, we're given a bass line. There are some chords that are put in a, above, some numbers to indicate the kind of chords. And so we really have this continuo section that we can have harpsichord, we can have lute, we can have harp, you can have double bass, you can have gamba, you can have bass de violon, you can have whatever is appropriate for the piece that you're doing. And you can vary these colors an enormous amount. So that's one of the great joys of it in terms of um, basso continuo and baroque kind of playing, which gets to be more formalized in terms of which instruments are used as you get towards Mozart, for instance. Indeed. And a lot of uh, music research into that field tends to try and uh, speak to okay, maybe there were performance parameters that were just understood. They were implicit. This mm. is a particular type of dance or this is a particular type of, of song. We need to have these instruments because those are the in, in appropriate instruments for the bustle continuous section for that particular style. Mm. But again, if Bach's Brandenburg concertos are anything to go by, they are owed to the fact that the bustle continuous section comes in many shapes and sizes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In terms of there's a lot of choice within you know, the numbers that are in the part, it's perfectly possible for the cellists to kind of put some chords in and things at times inappropriate. But of course, especially for, for theobo and um, guitar and harp and harpsichord, you know, how um, people choose to um, illuminate those kind of harmonies is, is endless variety and lots of um, room to show character and 
differences in the way that we approach things. And on the topic of blending in the continuo section, why don't we take a quick listen to the first movement from Brandenburg Concerto No. 6, performed live by the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra in 2019, featuring as soloists on the viola, Monique O'Day and Deidre Dowling... you and I share something very rare in common. Uh, we have both worked as the librarian for the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. Indeed we have. Nerds Anonymous. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a shirt? Maybe I should get some merchandise. Um, what was your role when you were working as librarian? What were you up to? So I had, um, when I was studying in London, I had a little job working for Faber and Novello as a music editor. Ooh. So when I came to Sydney, that's sort of part of what I what I did as well. Like I've always had a fascination, I suppose, with um, the way that we translate what we read on the page to how we play, mm. and it makes it actually makes a tremendous difference. And especially if you look at kind of early manuscripts, the way that we interpret things that have been put down so many hundreds of years ago. And the information that we have in front of us, it's um, it's a really fascinating kind of area. And you, you mentioned the word manuscript. Now, maybe you could just take us through the different types of manuscripts and, and what, what they are uh, when we're talking about, for example, Bach's music. What sort of things do we find? Are there primary sources? So, yeah, that's such a great question. Obviously, the primary source that we would look at is something in Bach's own hand. So for the Bach suites, for cello, for instance, we don't have that, that somewhere along the line has been destroyed. So we sort of try and find it. I, you know, we assume things about what might have been there by the copies that were made of it by other people. So, so we have both uh, manuscripts that, as primary sources that are in Bach's hand, mm-hmm. uh, not for the cello suites, as you said, but uh, but for other other music. We can find music written by Bach. Yes, absolutely. You know, yeah. Um, and then what would be then a secondary source, the, these copies that you say? So for the cello suites, for instance, there is a secondary source from Anna Magdalena Bach, so this is, you know, one that's that's often cited as the the primary secondary source, if we like. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then there's a, like a family tree of sources from the rest of it. There's two other sources which, you know, I think it's been deducted were from the same hand, but that's also been lost. Mm. Um, so there's kind of um, various differences in, especially the articulations, the slurs. And we know from comparing, say, Anna Magdalena's copies of other Bach works that she was perhaps a little more individualised with the slurring than Bach himself. Right. So, <laughs> so there are differences in style um, that you can tell from the different kind of copyists with the cello suites. It's yeah, it's a subject of many, many words that have been written about how we should 
look at them and which you know which notes we should play when there are differences between the actual notes and where the slurs mm. are and so lots of decision making and if i were a student coming across uh, the cello suites or coming to the cello suites rather for the first time uh, would i go to those sources first or is there another like a tertiary uh, sort of level of, of sources that might be more useful for me never having read manuscript mm. uh, a baroque manuscript before yes yeah, so obviously like um if you if you look at the Anna Magdalena, it's probably a little tricky to read if you're learning it for the first time, and it's certainly probably not the first place that you would go to. So there are editions that have been done by many, many people have done their own Bach edition, say, you know, perhaps more playable kind of slurrings and things than, than might be in the Anna Magdalena Bach um, kind of version. Um, so, yeah, there are definitely kind of people who have made it an easier path for players to go down, but it, nonetheless, especially as someone who's interested in historical performance, if you get to that kind of point where you're interested in exploring it, going back to the original, as close to the original source as you can, and making your own decisions mm. around that, it's definitely, it's a really interesting place to explore. Otherwise, you're always going to it through someone else's lens, if you like. I think you're being a little bit too generous to these various editions out there because <laughs> there are there are editions, modern editions, and yes. there are modern editions. Yes. Now, a word that some of our audience might be familiar with is the word, well, the term urtext, urtext mm. uh, edition. Yeah. Now, what is that? What is that urtext? Yeah, so this is a way of editing the music such that the editor's voice is clearly separated from the composer's voice or the original manuscript. So, for instance, things that are originally in the in the composer's hand or as you know in as close to the source as you can get would be in a solid line. For instance, as a slur, you'd be that'd be kind of in there. And any editorial suggestions are clearly indicated as such. So you can mm. kind of have a clearer kind of path around making decisions. Yes, either in brackets or sometimes they might be dashed rather than solid lines. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. all of those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and uh, is there a particular urtext version that you've worked from in the case of Bach's cello suites? So I actually read off the Anna Magdalena. So wow. So which is which is not it's not a huge thing it's quite easy to read she had a nice handwriting but there's also <laughs> something um lovely about the sense that it's you know it's it's much less clean to look at and mm. you know you can sort of definitely get the sense that it's been scribbled and crafted at a table, you know, which is actually quite nice. Yes. Um, and another word that often uh, people might see but might not be totally familiar with is the idea of facsimile. Mm -hmm. what, is a, what is a facsimile? So what this is a reproduction of the original. So it's kind of effective. Obviously, I'm not reading off the absolute original Anna Magdalena. That's, you know, in an I. I don't know where it is, but it's... In the know, Berlin State Library. In the Berlin State Library. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> a fellow librarian should know that. <laughs> um, but, you know, so it's a it's a copy. It's a faithful copy. Yes. So. And, and often, for those who are interested, there are even sources online where you can find libraries, volumes of, of these facsimiles, essentially. Oh, so many. Yeah. And I have to say... That in the years, this is kind of ages me somewhat, but in the years when I was librarian, these kind of internet resources were not available. And literally to get hold of music was such a task. I would have to think 
I would find out where something was. I would have to, you know, think of a friend in Venice who could go and visit the kind of convent that had it in their library and get the microfilm um, to copy it out. And, yeah. you know, this was, you know, in the days where they would try and fax it and that was a bit of a disaster in terms of how that would come out the other end of the machine. So these, like, there's so many amazing resources now in terms of what we can um, click on and a lot of people who have been really spending a lot of time putting old manuscripts into playable mm. kind of modern editions um, that are just available, you know, to, to click on and download. And mm. so, yeah, it's kind of, it's a quite a different world, I think, in that kind of musical discovery part of the librarian job. Exactly. And as you said um, previously, you get closer to the composer's intentions when you are reading from something that was in his own hand. Mm. The digital resources available today are amazing. You know, It's the I internet can, yeah. and early music nerds dare I say, including myself among them, is a match made in heaven. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I even made a request just the other day for the British Library to send me a copy of a, a manuscript, and that was for my own personal reasons. Mm. You know, they have these manuscripts often in their possession, whether it be the Berlin State Library or the, the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. Or, you know, the, these libraries have amazing resources at hand, but not necessarily a reason to copy everything. It takes mm. time. Making a good digital scan is, you know, time-consuming. Absolutely. So if you're willing to pay 45 euros, you can get yourself a particular volume mm. of chanson from the Baroque period that maybe was never scanned before. And then because you paid, you've also, in a way, patronized for that to be available for other people in the future. It's fantastic, I think. Yeah, it's really fantastic. Actually, the, the reading room in the British Library was one of my favorite places to spend time. It was, yeah, such an incredible building and such so full of so many treasures. Now, on the cello suites and as a soloist, how did you go about crafting the three movements that you played? It was the Allemande, Courante and Sarabande, I believe. Yeah, so they each have a different kind of character and a different kind of, they're based on dance movements. So they're little vignettes, if you like, or kind of character kind of pieces in their own way. And then with your performance as a soloist um, and looking at the, the manuscript, knowing that there are no dynamic markings, the slurring is questionable, uh, what did, how did you go about resolving that problem for yourself? Yeah, well, I decided to go, you know, with Anna Magdalena's kind of slurring just as a kind of, you know, I guess it's an exercise and maybe, a, you know, a few weeks or a couple of years' time I might make different decisions. This is... Um, but... Uh, so I mostly went with her slurring. You know, the music speaks to you in a way and, and to allow yourself to listen to what the, the different harmonies mean, what the different kind of mm. range of sounds and the spacing of the notes and the rhythms and things. One of the things about um, Baroque music, particularly with dance music, is that we like to consider what we call hierarchy in terms of the different importance that we place on beats of the bar Mm. Um, and that that we perhaps we have you know more concern with hierarchy than than in later music, which is comes back to that thing about the instrument and the greater use of I guess heavy and light bows, um, which which is different in the construction of the bow in terms of that there's much more heaviness on one direction of the bow than there is on the returning direction of the bow, 
whereas with modern bows, the aim was for a more unified, even kind of sound. You mentioned how the the music and the harmony uh, might work, how it might feel, and I wanted to get in uh, uh, to that and the the affect of music and harmony with you, Anthea, because you are not just a fantastic baroque cellist and and viola da gamba player, are you? So I know, Anthea, that you also work as a psychologist. You're a very talented person, professional musician, a mother of many beautiful children. Psych- Just two. Yeah. Just two. <laughs> well, well, that's still... <laughs> Do you see any crossover then between these two worlds, psychology and, and music? Oh, absolutely. And this is, you know, something I think I increasingly think about at the moment is that, you know, the way that we connect with each other emotionally and the way that we're able to kind of, I guess, share an emotional space, um, kind of shift that emotional space perhaps um, between what we do together is definitely something that's, especially in this in this period of time when I perhaps have been doing that more in a psychological space than a performance space, mm. has definitely been something I've been thinking about quite a lot. So in Baroque music, um, the tuning was done slightly differently to how a modern piano, for instance, might be tuned. Um, and that each key, while now sounds kind of equally um, the same. and Yes, the, a, the intervals are equally the, tempered. Yeah, e- Equally tempered. So there's no real difference between a fifth on one part of the keyboard to a fifth on another part of the keyboard. In, the, in Baroque music, there were various different tuning systems um, that each kind of gave the keys their own kind of character. And this was a, an emotional kind of language around keys that was very much understood, sort of like colours, I suppose, that they sort of had an emotionality to them. And they were described in the most, you know, incredible kind of ways. So, for instance, D-flat major was described, um, this is by Schubert, Um, was described as a leering key, degenerating into grief and rapture. It cannot laugh, but it can smile. It cannot howl, but at least it can grimace its crying. Consequently, only unusual characters and feelings can be brought out in this key. I mean, it's it's so poetic. Isn't it? It's extraordinary language around it. And it's just like um, the way that composers would modulate from one key to another had huge emotional kind of meaning in that and it was really because of the way the physics of the way things were tuned together whether they would sound sweet or kind of um, I guess a little harsher or a little bit more degenerate and Mm. full of grief. And with Dr. Alan Maddox previously we've spoken about programmatic music within uh, the Baroque uh, music tradition and earlier Mm. music traditions too, Mm. uh, Renaissance and and so forth. And uh, the idea of choosing a key, a particular key to represent uh, something in the music itself was fundamental. We know that Vivaldi chose F major for autumn um, mm. uh, for a particular uh, a particular reason, not just because it's the natural key of the of the corna di caccia, you mm. know, the horns that play, um, but there are specific emotive reasons for that choice. Yeah, now, absolutely. Now going to the cello uh, suite number one and G major. Mm. Tell us about G major. Well, so. Um, G major is described as everything rustic, idyllic and lyrical, every calm and satisfied passion, every tender gratitude for true friendship and faithful love. In a word, 
every gentle and peaceful emotion of the heart is correctly expressed by this key. What a fabulous key. I know. And it's actually really why I chose something from the first week because I thought, oh, where would I like to spend some time? Because, you know, the thing is at the moment, I suppose, you know, we have a choice about, you know, what do you get up and practice? And so to spend some time in G major rather than in D flat major, whereas we described it before. It's a bit more volatile, but also poetic. Yes, absolutely. Now, imagining I'm not deaf, um, but I know know nothing about Western music or the affections, key signatures. I've never heard of any of it. Mm. Um, How do you think these three movements that you play, the Allemande, Courante and and Sarabande, um, would make me feel? Would I feel the same things about each of them or would they make me feel slightly different emotions? Oh, well, I hope they would make you feel slightly different emotions. Um, In terms of... Um, there's, there's a different kind of character and a different kind of tempo and a different kind of feel to the dance. If you imagine them each as dancers, they would they would feel quite different to do and they mm. would feel different in, in the body and hopefully imbue a different sense of emotionality through it. So the Allemande is, you know, quite contented and upright, but sort of easygoing as well. Um, the courant, it's the word for running. So there's a sense of fleet-footedness and kind of lightness that comes through it. And the saraband is a more serious kind of dance. It's, uh, has no other emotion to express but ambition, as it sort of says, and maintains its seriousness. So it's, there's a little bit of making an impression and kind of statesman-like quality to it. Now, one last question for you, uh, because you've been very generous and accorded me a lot of time today. It's fantastic. Thank you. Oh, my um, pleasure. One last question for you, though. As a soloist playing J.S. Bach's music, um, in general, not just for the cello suite, but playing mm. his music, how does his music make you feel? Oh, what a lovely question. Um, so it's a beautiful place to spend time. Like, it, it feels like there's... Um, no matter how many years you might look at it, there's more things that you would find. It's immensely satisfying place to spend time. Um, of course, there is the the weight of you know the fact that they're you know some of the most well-known cello pieces in the world, and everyone has played them. But that's a kind of there is also that sort of sense that they they very much belong to cellists, you know, to all mm. cellists. This kind of incredible music that he wrote, and everyone finds their own way of being with them, which is a tremendous, you know, unifying thing. Well, thank you again, Anthony. It has been a real privilege and pleasure talking with you today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. The Brandenburg is proud of our long-standing relationship with principal partner Macquarie Group. Our partnership with Macquarie Group is built on a shared vision of infinite possibilities and a commitment to the very highest standards of excellence. The Brandenburg is also proud to be supported by APA Group, our presenting partner for the Bach series. Through our partnership with APA Group, we have the opportunity to connect Baroque music to audiences and communities throughout Australia.